Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, welcome to the Inspiring Leadership series. I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and as part of the series, I'm very lucky to have Professor Angus Lane. And Angus is the Dean of Lancaster University Management School, LUMS. So Angus, welcome to the series. Jonathan, thank you, thank you very much. I'm looking, looking forward to our conversation. Great, and let's go into firstly about what your current role is. Uh, and tell us about your career journey into leadership. You were recommended to be on the series as someone who's very inspiring. I know you're very modest about that, but it's nice to have you recommended that people thought they found you very inspiring. But tell about your current role and your journey into it. I mean, if you wanted to look at it in a sort of humorous light, I am herder in chief of nearly 300 academic cats. Universities are essentially collegiate organizations. We are not hierarchical at all. Um, And my role is within the domain of business and management to draw together in the region of 300 academics supported by another 200 professional service colleagues to deliver a range of programs, undergraduate and postgraduate, to undertake uh, world leading leading research and to do significant amounts of engagement with large companies and SMEs in the UK and and internationally. So it's a, a, if you like, it would be a divisional chief executive, but a divisional chief executive in a a very flat organization where little is done by uh, command, nothing is done by control, and it's all done by, it's all done by persuasion and negotiation. And universities, business schools are frequently described as, the, the role is described as being akin to herding cats, hence the, the reference at the outset, putting socks on an octopus, take your, take your pick. But it does suggest to you that the role is very, very people-centered. Um, you can only achieve things through um, working with colleagues. You, It's your ability to motivate a team, bring a team forward is what, and, and give them a vision, uh, a sense of direction is what lies at the core, what lies at the core of the role. And just a final observation is, and I'm sure it wouldn't have escaped uh, many of your viewers who will have at various points been through business schools. The delight of my role is I've always got colleagues who know more about one specific aspect of management, leadership and business than I do. And being confident world-leading academics, they're never hesitant about pointing out my pointing out my failings. So a degree of a degree of robustness, um, at the same time the sensitivity to deal with sort of the professional colleagues is is is, is a necessity in the in the role. Yeah. The way I portrayed it, you might ask, how on earth did I end up in it? Um, yeah, I did it. I did it. Yeah. Like many people, I suspect, and I don't. This is not unique to to academia at all. I, I look in many industries, and you see it. You see many of our the students have come on our MBA programs, either the full time or executive MBA. They've come through a technical route. They are a technical specialist that get drawn because of some characteristics they've got, notionally some abilities they've got into leader into into leadership roles. And frankly, I don't think it was any it was any different different for me. I started off. I decided after a relatively brief three years uh, career in career in business that actually what I really wanted to do is I wanted to go back to university um, and I, I, I did so I did my PhD I, I became an academic in a sense I was I feel like on the tools and what, your PhD sometimes they can be quite uh, obtuse what was it was it very mine was mine was mine was neither intellectual nor obtuse it was it was looking as it was back in the 1990s and it was looking at the way in which general practice fund holders responded to the NHS internal market. So was, I try to understand their behaviours, agent principle theory, looking at you're, you're the agent on behalf of your patient, how are you then going about using or not using the opportunities that might lie in 
the internal market in the in the health service. Um, so it's very much a case of trying to understand um, how policy and policy solutions really translated into practice on the ground and what was what was happening on the ground. Um, so that was that was that was what it was about. And I've, my my academic interest stayed around professional services, and I suppose it's quite useful as a dean. Um, and a lot of it has been around the impact of technology, uh, and within technology, particularly information technology that provides consumers with access to information on their behaviors. Um, so run multiple large projects around health, law, financial services, looking at the impact of information access in reducing some of the informational asymmetries you would typically have between professionals and consumers. So that's the, that, was the, that was the background I, I, I came from. Um, why did I get into academia? Well, why did I get into the leadership role? Probably, probably because there were some instances uh, where it was a case if I don't do it, and remember there's a lot of the roles and uh, many of the leadership roles in academia use sort of, okay, come on, it's your turn, there's an expectation you're going to do you're going to do this, um, and there's at least one circumstance where I'm looking and thinking, well, if it's not me, it's somebody else, and this other person that I'm thinking, no. Um, so you you, you, vol you volunteer, and then in other instances you volunteered by a colleague saying, please, you've got to go for it because it can't be X or Y. Um, so in that sense, the quintessential accidental quintessential accidental leader. Uh, and. Um... So, so the journey um, into your, your role as the Dean at um, Lunds, um, thinking back to right at the beginning when you were just even doing those, those three years in business before you moved into academia, what bit of advice do you wish you'd been given then? Just one bit of advice, because there's loads of advice people can give. They thought that would have served me so well throughout. Maybe it's a bit of advice that others would would benefit from too. What, what bit of advice right at the beginning of your career do you wish you'd I, I, I suspect in this instance it possibly reflects my personality so it's, it was anchored in that and it would be have patience play yeah. the long get play the long play the long game um, it's about and I've said already it's about a people it's a people business it's you've got to get the people on board no matter that it's obvious to you the direction of travel uh, it can be blindingly obvious to you and you know you probably need to do this in two years, really putting your foot straight on the pedal is not going to take people with you. You're just going to get wheel spin, um, if, not, if not friction. Um, and it really is a case. So the piece of advice would have been, hold your horses. Um, don't, be, don't be the, I can say it now, now, that, now that the hairline's receding, don't be the angry young man and determined to, determined to drive things forward too fast. I think that's been something that's, uh, Maybe a sad reflection on me, but it's taken me rather longer to learn than other people might have. Yeah, and um, I was reading recently and very much enjoying. Uh, I tend to listen to audio books um, because of my sort of dyslexia, but the uh, the book is called "Life Is in the Transitions," and, and we're, we're sort of taught at school that we have this linear kind of career and uh, and life trajectory doing through all the stages. But I don't know about you, but mine's been very uh, undulating. Um, sometimes circular, you come back again and revisit something you didn't get right the first time, or even you got it wrong the second time, where having got it right the first time. But as you think about your life transitions, um, if you were to pick out a, a proudest moment and a darkest moment, and what you learned from both, what, what would you, what transitional point would you pick? Uh, and, and maybe there's some lessons for us all from those. Yeah, you'll need to maybe see. There's two sort of questions. There's two elements there, and I'll I'll, I'll suddenly go with the I'll, I'll I'll go with the latter, and then we can try and tease out some of the some of the sort of the 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 darker, more challenging. I think the thing I'm most proud of is actually making some real organisational change in context that people felt were difficult. Um, so the first one I'd cite would be when it was my it was my first full dean's role at uh, Loughborough University in the UK, and I was recruited after quite a long search. So I, I'm under no illusions that I was necessarily the first choice for the for the for the role. Um, two arms and two legs will take him. Whoever comes to the door next, we'll just have to <laughs> get you absolutely right on that one. Um, but they were looking at integrating a small business school 
a Department of Economics, a Department of Information Science, and a continuing education unit into an integrated school. Now, for many of your many of your listeners, that might go, so we do this type of integration in businesses all the time. Um, yes. Integrating business and economics is invariably a particularly poisoned chalice. Um, and little, little unbeknown to me, um, before I started, I'd, um, it had been the case that the, the, the vice chancellor had been determined to drive this merger together and more or less had been sent back to think again after a particularly robust meeting with colleagues across the across the various units, the various departments. So I sort of blithely step into this. Um, measure of success, you look where Loughborough is, and in particular you look where the School of Business Economics is in the rankings today. And I am deeply, deeply proud, but I'm also deeply grateful to the fantastic colleagues I had to work with there to actually achieve that. But it was a real lesson that if you had clarity of what you were trying to achieve, if you were able to reassure colleagues that you understood their concerns, that you shared their values, their underpinning values, you could take them on on a journey. And so I'm incredibly proud of that. Um, there's one other thing I'm proud of I'd want to talk about in just a second, but you reflecting, you said earlier about loops back in history and in your, your career history, your career trajectory. And I think I had an interesting experience in my role immediately before that. I'd, I'd, I'd been at Glasgow um, University for about five years and I'd been head of department management, and I'd taken on a role um, at the behest of the vice the then vice chancellor to go and try and create a, a business school out of, again, this sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Out of a number of departments. Let's say I, it was my turn to go and think again, um, because I hitched my wagon very much to Samir Russell was the then vice principal, vice chancellor, um, I very much, it was his his idea. I hitched my wagon to him. I didn't pay enough attention to the wide of institutional politics, and some of our colleagues in sciences and the more established academic disciplines were not. How should we phrase it? Vast supporters of the idea of creating an overweening business school within the university. Um, and when he stepped down and became effectively a lame duck vice chancellor, the whole the whole process kind of ground to a halt. So the real learning for me there in terms is not just about selling it to the people you're going to have to change with within 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 a unit, but it's selling it within the wider institution. So there was a there was a real lesson there in about taking people with you. It's not just the people yeah, was that, that you know, one of your dark moments was that, do you think? Yeah, I think that 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 was because then you're not leaving Glasgow after that. Um, I the opportunity came up at Loughborough. I mean, Glasgow is a great university. It's a great city. Um, but actually, I think I I, I I find I felt somewhat burnt by that. And I think it's one of these probably one of the instances because I'd taken a fairly a fairly bullish approach. And this is back to my point about about a degree of a degree of um, patience. Uh, I'm not. Sh- I, I I think it would have been relatively difficult to go and take on another significant leadership role within the university. And what I did was, is not uncommon in academia, I went and I took a sabbatical, I, I, I continued to work on a large research grant I had, um, and would have carried down, gone, almost switched back onto the tools possibly. Um, and then revisited leadership later, but the opportunity at Loughborough came up and I, I, I pursued it. So I got a sense, Loughborough benefited from me in a sense, almost having had a practice run. Yeah, something. Yeah. And knowing how to about it, I think I think we learn so much from. I made many mistakes in my life, and um, it's actually from those that I've I've learned the most. The things that went well, in some ways, you skip by and you don't really think about what the military would refer to an after-action review, you know, uh, or GDD. What was good, what was difficult, and what would you do differently? Uh, I always find that, or, or what worked well, and what would have been even better. But I find GDD good, uh, difficult, and different uh, is always a, a great bit of a framework to, to think about everything, particularly things that went well. And then what about tips? Um, what habits, you know, I find inspiring leaders all have good habits. 
um, that they, they're quite disciplined about, but some of the habits around being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, if you were to pick one tip about that keeps you healthy, one that uh, has helped you, you're, you're never going to be wealthy uh, in your role. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll meet wealthy people. Um, I'll never, as they said to me in the army, you'll never be a rich man, but you'll live the life of a rich man. Well, sitting in a wet trench, I never felt I was living the life of, the life of a rich man, but at a dinner, dinner night, I might have done. Um, yeah, wealthy, bit of advice on money um, that you think is sound for others and a bit of wisdom. Uh, what would you pick out as the healthy, wealthy and wise tips from your point of view? Hmm. I think healthy and wise. I'm not sure I'm qualified to talk on the wealthy one. Other than no, maybe maybe I'll come, come back to something on that. But I think actually build a great team around you. I think that having a good team means you've got to be resilient in yourself. I mean, I think there's no there's no there's no equivocation about that. Um, and partly, I sometimes think you need you need to you need the 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 neck of a rhinoceros to be able to take everything. People, but you need you need you need the hands of an artist, very soft, but to 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 nurture to nurture others. So you've got that you've got a sort of hard side. You've got to cope with it, but you've also got to understand you, other people's feelings. And is that in, you're you're a sort of an interesting buffer, often um, on on that. So I think I think. You you need that, but for me, so you've got to do your own resilience. You find your own way of having your own resilience. But I think most of my resilience actually comes from having a great team around me, and it's that keeps me healthy. But also, it makes me wise because I think the trick to a good team is to have people in that team who know more about a particular thing than you do, um, who are definitely in real command of that detail of their of, of, of their of their brief that you've built up a relationship with them that you absolutely absolutely trust and i think that that for me is the element and i've then become wise because i learn from them i have no shame at all in admitting that to my associate deans whether it's for um particularly for particularly say for, for postgraduate education i learn a huge amount from them um, yeah. because they are right there in the cutting edge of seeing what is happening, how the market is changing. And I think that is, that team is hugely, that team for me is hugely important. If I had to say, had to say anything, healthy and wise, it's the team that makes it for me. Yeah. Can I come on to the one on wealthy? Because I, I, think, I think there's an interesting one here for many of us who are in sectors that might not necessarily pay in narrow pecuniary terms as well as other sectors might. It's a question of can you find opportunities where you can leverage your insights, your expertise to grow, to create, um, share and creating new businesses. So I'm I'm involved as co-founder of a higher education startup, Nurture HE, which is around trying to develop and deliver a different model of uh, global business education. In other words, making high quality business education affordable in developing economies, where with the exception of um, wealthy students, wealthy families, the opportunities are very limited because the much of the domestic quality that is uh, the domestic provision that's affordable for them is actually of low quality. So I think about the wealthy bit is how you leverage your expertise yeah. into, into other areas, either right. in parallel with your core career or subsequent to that. But I, I, I think one of the things I see is in, in academia, we do a lot around entrepreneurship. We do a lot with, well, a lot with SMEs high growth SMEs. And I'm really struck by the number of the entrepreneurs who are significantly older. Um, they're not your they're not your 20 something Zuckerbergs, etc. They're people who have had a career for them and really understood a particular sector mm. and been able to bring that expertise and recognize through their thinking, through their understanding of that sector, a different perspective. Yeah, I, I would agree. I've seen that too. And since the theme of this uh, topic is inspiring leadership and teams, what, what is your view on what makes a good inspiring leader and a good inspiring team? Just keep an eye on my dog. He's around. There he is. Yeah, what makes a good inspiring leader and a good inspiring team? 
Right. I think inspiring leadership really is being it for me is being able to craft a sense of of vision, being able to craft a narrative of what the future might look like. A narrative that's exciting that people want to be that want to be part of. That people not not so way out that people can't believe it. Um, but it's it, it's credible, it's exciting, it fits with the wider values of the institution. One of the things I think you learn working in universities, even relatively young universities like Lancaster, which is just over 50 years old, is is that the DNA is very very strong. You really need to you need you need to you need to work with the work with the DNA. So any vision you have needs to be consistent with that with that deep deep DNA of the institution. Um, but I think you have to be able to have a compelling vision that people are almost almost because of the DNA of the institution predisposed to to buying into. So you can see a set of futures, but probably only one of those futures will be a window that is actually open for that particular organisation because of its culture and its skill set. Yeah, and you raised an interesting topic. It was something I was in a conversation earlier today about. Um, designing a vision, you know, giving the skill to leaders at your business school about how do they create a vision for their bit of the firm that they're in. Have you found a simple framework, a one page, a sort of four quadrant thing about, about helping people from scratch create a vision? What, if there were two or three things that are really important for, for vision? Does it come to mind? If it doesn't, don't worry. But I just wondered if um, can I can we can we wind wind back wind back to that one, Jonathan? I'll keep that I'll keep that in the back of my mind. As we okay, let's go into the team. Let's go into the team. What about what makes a good inspiring team? Do you find? I, I you have you have to be starting off with the quality of your, the, the staff that you're originally hiring, um, without a shadow of a doubt, um, and being able to draw in people who are better than you are. Um, not just in particular areas, like I indicated earlier, but actually probably actually better than you, um, and have got the ability. I've got I've got um, Sophia Dean Resources, who frankly is far better than I ever will be. Um, then their career will go will go on to do, I'm sure, to do great things should they choose to do so. And that's the that's the issue, I think, because I think there's many roles in many many leadership roles in organisations that people look at and think, hmm, not sure that's particularly for me, particularly palatable. I just said. It, if I was looking at, if I'd gone back even 10 years, I might have said a direction of travel for my, myself would have been, oh, I, want, I want to be a vice chancellor of the university. If you look at the current environment in the UK, you have to ask a question, why and ask would anyone want to be a vice chancellor of a UK university at the present moment? Um, you're not going to win popularity stakes and the level of pressure on it, the level of pressure is enormous. The salary levels are frankly not that, not that attractive. Why would you do it? Um, so I think I think for a team, it's getting really, really outstanding, outstanding people on board. It's about providing them with the space. So that vision is then starting to create a framework for you that you, you as a team are agreed in what you're achieving. It can be quite tight. It can be quite simple. But then that provides the guide rail that keeps colleagues on track. I then want them to feel that they have the entrepreneurial space. The space, to, the space to innovate, and I want them to cascade that down to down to other colleagues. We, it doesn't matter whether you whether you go back to the nineteen sixties, jacking with quality circles, or whether you're looking at universities in in the UK today. Very often, your frontline staff have have really good ideas of what can be what can be done to improve uh, what we offer, the way we and the way we operate. So it's creating an environment where everybody feels they can contribute. To, to to the the success of the school, and I think so. So I think that that empowering people, empowering your leadership team, but getting your leadership team to empower others, for yeah. me, is critical. Yeah. And I build on that. You're you're. I love your metaphors of the uh, the artist's hands and the rhino's neck. I, I'll that'll stay with me for for a while. I'd use two metaphors that people have passed under me over time. That that they said they they needed to be surrounded by an army of giants, metaphorical giants who. Are, two inches taller than them in their specialist area. And then they'd never work a day in their life as the, as the leader of that team. And, and the second analogy was one of sort of eagles versus turkeys. Are, are you gonna have your people, a bunch of turkeys in a large American industrial farm under the spotlights up to their knees in ammonia uh, and other unpleasantries? 
Uh, or are you going to have them as eagles on an eerie where they have their own patch of sky that they can go and hunt in, uh, but they come back to the eerie? And I, I think that that was good advice I was given. And, and of those inspiring leaders, if you were to pick a couple of leaders who, who you've worked with or you know or have taught or whatever, who would you pick and what qualities have you admired about them? Right. I mean, one of, one of, one of the genuine delights of, of running a business school is you get to meet fantastic people. I mean, you'll, you'll do this in, 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 in coaching, John. You get to work with really, really fantastic people. You also get to be a voyeur, um, a voyeur into organizations um, and see how other people operate and what you can and the things you can learn from them. So there's a very considerable list I could, I could mention of people I've gone and seen how they operate. Thought, that's clever. That's good. But I draw, I, I, I cite two, both of whom have been on uh, advisory boards for me, one at Lancaster and one at Loughborough. So at Lancaster has been Andy Rubin, um, chair of the of Pentland Brands, the Pentland Group, um, which they own Speedo, Berghouse, etc., one of the UK's largest private, private companies. Um, and Andy is intellectually absolutely outstanding, but he's completely grounded. At the same time, he blends a sense of vision, of long-term, long-term planning, with not just a sense of detail, but a real sense of bringing his organisation with him, of valuing people. The things he's proud of is not is he obviously yes, the financial performance of the organisation, but the way in which staff regard the organisation, the the awards they garner. For the way in which they, which they, which they treat their staff, somebody who's very, very much values-led, and one of the things I will always, I, I certainly took from Andy, was ideas around. We were doing work with Kevin Roberts, the ex-chief executive, Sachi and Sachi, who was also an advisory board. Um, but what Andy was really emphasising was values. Get your values right. Stick to the values, and and it was something that you intuitively knew. Um, but actually having somebody banging that on at you all the time is incredibly valuable, incredibly reinforcing, and particularly when it's done also with, with, with other members of your leadership team. Mm. So Andy would be... Andy Everyone. Would, Who would be the second? Some of people probably wouldn't uh, would have heard of even less. A chap by the name of Stuart Miller founded a company called Buybox. Um, and if I learned two Ps from Stuart, it was around being a pirate pivoting so if you if your business idea you've got a business idea you think something it's not working in one particular context go and pivot it try it in a different context and see if it works there and hey presto it did so he was very much into the the question about the final mile how do you how does internet retailing work how do you how do you cover the issue about the final mile mm. and his thinking had been way back around 2001 2002 in the u.s was we'll go and get um, lockers where you can have a pin code that you get, and you can go and your stuff is deposited there, you go and pick it up. Arguably, we're now seeing it, Amazon's doing it, but it was too early. For the consumers, it was too early. But instead of being beaten, he, he came back to the UK and adapted the model for service engineers. So if service engineers need to pick up parts um, in, an urban, in an urban center, it works exactly the same way. They've got their they've got their locker so head. So that's where buy box came from. So this this notion of pivoting, but then also the notion of competing against against relatively large established players in in adjacent territories. You need to be the pirate. You don't you you don't fight by the Queensbury rules. You go and you take a diff you go you go and take a different approach. And this is not to suggest that in any shape or form that Stuart wasn't ethical. He very much was in, in and an emphasis on value, the emphasis on what you can deliver, but in parallel with Andy. Um, but that real but that real sense of um, okay, we need to think about it differently. The tactics that work if you're a market leader ain't gonna work for us. How do we do it? How do we spot the point of weakness? And I think the two of them have both been in their own way in, in influential. I, I suppose I read very widely. I'm an academic, comes kind of goes with the territory. Um, so it's difficult to see one sort of big figure and it feels a sort of cliche, Nelson Mandela, et cetera, et cetera. I actually think it's the people who you get the privilege to work closely with. And if the one thing I'd say around leadership development is Coaching, absolutely. But the other thing is surround yourself with a network of people who have done interesting things. Yeah, so, so true. 
And now as, as we're interviewing, um, universities are right in the spotlight with COVID um, and COVID-19 and you know, people being locked in their rooms and various things like that. And uh, as we were discussing before we, we went on air, you know, this is the perfect storm that, that was been modeled, that this would be the problem. You bring people from all these different directions, from different villages, towns, countries, put them all in one small space, add alcohol um, and, and close working, and you're going to get a spread of the pandemic. What's been the impact of COVID for you personally and as the dean of Lancaster University Management School? Personally, like many of us, um, a bad back because you don't take your office chair with you when you're working from home. Um, and unequivocally having within a domestic context to, to learn how to, when, when you might with your partner, say, I'll never work for you, I'll never work with you, actually having to, having to share, share, share the same space. So there's been, been the usual sort of level of pain that I've had that's no different from, no different from anybody, anybody else. Um, I think what I learned personally, we'll come onto the sector and business schools in particular in a second. I think that I, I, I've learned that there are non-conventional ways of doing things that really work and work better than the old established ways of working. So communication, we always run um, at least quarterly all faculty, all staff faculty meetings. And the attendance was, Oh, so-so. Um, and the questions were, so-so. Moving it online, moving it onto Teams, absolutely transformation. Huge levels of attendance, what people have got less to do. So perhaps I'm more interested in, I'm more interesting than the, than the alternatives in this, in this less interesting world. Um, but actually it also allows them to engage in questions. So the use of the conversation facilities on Zoom or Teams or, 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 or Google Meet, absolutely useful in terms of really, really engaging colleagues. So I think we've seen a real positive there. It's been challenging for colleagues having to work from home. Many of our academics had some experience of working from home, um, but um, most of our professional service staff did not. They, they worked in the, in the office five days a week. Um, so it's, it's been a change for them, and I think we've actually managed it much better than I much better than I thought. So I'm really I'm really pleased about that. And and really, there's the lead on from that, which you were probably going to allude to. We were talking earlier how, particularly in your from a management school point of view, and looking at so many sectors, so many businesses who are people are attending your your courses. Um, how do you think COVID nineteen's impacted the way people lead now? And they will do in the future. What's your predictions of, of how people will lead and the way businesses will be uh, functioning, really? I mean, I think there's, there's elements. There's, there's, very, there's very little here that's going to be original, I think, because we're probably all looking at the same, the same reports coming out around changing practices in, in organisations. I think far less emphasis on presenteeism. I think far greater understanding that um, colleagues in a, in a well-led organization who are motivated will be more productive, will be at least as productive at home as in, as, as, as in the office space. Um, it's going to raise, and it does raise already, huge, funda huge fundamental questions around the corporate and educational estate um that we all that we all have i'm sitting here if i lean forward and look out we've got a we've got a 20 plus million pound extension to the building um a lot of offices several 200 seat lecture theaters there and i'm going okay if i was going to be starting the planning of this now would i be actually would i be actually having that design um I'm not, I, I think, I know I'm not alone in the sector. Um, other institutions, Durham is in, in a similar position of putting up, our, putting up new facilities. And you're going, right, okay, so how do, we, how do we adapt them for a changed world? Because we're going to have a model that says people work at home and um, in the office, people coming into the, the office. Some of it will be for the, in, on the educational side of the state, if you like. It will be delivering part of the educational experience. I'll be another part of that educational experience will have been moved on will have been moved online um, when they do come into the the estate um, 
the purpose is going to be different. It is going to be much more meetings that are focused around collaboration and really developing uh, collaboration, um, whether it's around large-scale collaborative research grants, um, whether it's around uh, thinking about uh, future developments. Those are the sorts of reasons we're going to be bringing people together because I think most of the many many of the functions. I mean, Penn State University, we we are we are awash with committees. Most of your formal committee structures work really well in an online format um, because it's it's a tightly structured type of meeting that I think online um, through Zoom, Teams, etc. works probably better again because of that because of the chat function chat function down the side. So we are going to change the way we all um, work. From an educational point of view, we've got some very, very profound questions to ask. But in some ways, we also know the answers because we've talked about these for a long time. The, the notion of flipping the classroom where, where the content, the, the, the formal knowledge content is delivered online. The learning experiences are then focused on interactive learning experiences or in, in applied disciplines, applied fields like business and management, actually real experiential learning opportunities. We know we could have done that. We've never done it for two reasons. One is, well, academics tend to be conservative with a small c. It's it, why we change, it works. The business model is not broken. Fair enough. There's an element, there's, there's an element in there. The other reason we've not done it is we might recognize that lectures are not the world's greatest pedagogical tool, but by golly, they're efficient. Um, 200 students, one lecture for one hour. Okay, I then have 20 seminars of an hour each. Instead of one hour, it's 20 hours of academic time. So the, you, we've got to rethink some of the, um, it's all very well to talk about flipping the classroom, it's all very well. It's, and it's not just then about the skills that your academic colleagues have, the mix of skills we've got, but it's actually around the underlying economics of the model that yeah. we've got. Um, you then start, and of course, they may be conservative, but they may be left of centre as well. So you then are into the territory where they may be perceiving casualisation of labour um, in terms of you've got the intellectual search stars over here, and you've got the extras, low-paid, exploited, doing doing face-to-face um, -face, uh, learning facilitation with students. The set a set of real interesting challenges for us to us to work through in the coming years. I'll put money that in five, 10 years, the business schools and universities we see today will look nothing. We won't see the one, we won't see what we've got today. We will see a learning experience that is genuinely blended. That might start off with face-to-face -face interaction um, for all the reasons we've been, we've been hinting at, the value people get that sense of community, that shared learning, that bonding, coming together first of all, then a big chunk of probably delivered digitally, um, delivered remotely um, of knowledge, then coming in for experiential learning, learning opportunities. And a, a really blended, blended process that we have to change our staffing base, we've got to change our facilities in order to do that. Um, so at one level, slightly sort of, oh, that could be a bit scary. On the other hand, deeply, deeply exciting, um, because I think it allows us to reduce, I think it should allow us in the medium term to reduce the cost of education because one of the things I really, really jibe at, I think it's a, I think it's indicative of, well, not indicative, sorry, emblematic of some of the societal problems we have when you get middle class parents in the U, it's in the US, but you're starting to see echoes of this in the UK, middle class parents in the US unable to afford college fees for their children in an environment that says college is critical route to carrying on each generation doing better than the preceding generation. That in itself is a whole question we have to ask to how, how sustainable uh, ecologically that, that, that happens to be. But if that's an aspiration, we've got to do something about actually saying the, the cost inflation in higher education has been such, we need to find a way of rowing back, rowing back from that. And that's going to require that we change the model. The model we've got is a model that we've had for 200 plus years. And it works fine if you've got 5% of the population going to university. Once you get 50% of the population going to, it's, it's unsustainable. Ask the chancellor that and look at look at the extent to which student uh, student debt is going to be repaid. Yeah. 
yeah no it's a it's a really interesting area so uh, last couple of questions um what mistakes do you see people making during this crisis and uh the change that's going on you know what what blunders have you seen which you warn us off from as leaders and as as managers blunders is a very strong word um errors i think one of the one of the biggest one is rushing too quickly to a decision um and I, I would always take a sort of decision tree approach if you go down this route am i blocked off from doing something else i think the need for nimbleness and the need for agility to change as the environment changes because the environment has been changing so fast here for us and much a significant amount of that changes is around government policies we need to be in a position where we are where we're, where we're adaptive. So I think the biggest, mis the one big error that I've seen, we've all made, I've been guilty of it, running through the university, running through other universities we've been at, we've, okay, that's it, we've got to move quickly. We've got to make a decision now, and you leap. And then there's a whole set of consequences flow from that, that if that's the wrong initial leap, it might've been the right thing, the sense of urgency, the need to move quickly, but then you've got to then, how do you roll back from that, move over and then go here? So. It's about balancing the need for rapid response without, in a very, very uncertain environment, without blocking your your, your route to change is yes. number one. I've got one other one, I think. Is also I know, but you do want to build on that, really, because I think it's so astute a comment that, um, you know, one CEO said to me, I, I normally have a three to five year strategy. I've got a three to five week strategy now, uh, and my time horizons have come right down. And I was enjoying reading um, Leadership is Language by Admiral David Marquet, uh, the, the guy who did turn the ship around. He was a submarine commander. But he was talking about how this um, super tanker went down the coast of California and it ended up going into the eye of a hurricane and all 36 crew were lost. But they had a couple of moments when they could have made a decision to take another route on the other side of the island. But the captain felt he'd made the decision so he was committed to it and looked for reasons to reinforce the bad decision that he'd made. And I think this, this point about, and you've alluded to it really, okay, you need to make a decision and, and making and not making a decision is a decision in itself, but then you need to have review points and we'll review it in three weeks time and, and decide then, as Churchill said, when he was criticized for changing his, his opinion on something, he said, well, when the situation changes, I change my opinion. What do you do? Yeah. And, and this point of a review point, when you have somebody who is the decision evaluator, the most senior person, but the decision maker might be lower down, and then there's somebody to evaluate it. Let's review it, look at it. Okay, situation's changed. Let's change course. And this is where in the military we should talk about tempo, which is the ability to go fast in one direction, but then suddenly change and without losing momentum, move quickly in another direction. So people have got to keep tempo these days. But this review point, I think, is very important. I'm not sure whether that resonates for you. I mean, it does. It does. It does. It does. It does completely. So it's about looking at that, uh, looking at that decision tree, and knowing what's the last point I can move. I I, I have to go on that point. Forgetting, and, and in some instances, I think in this reaction to the crisis, I think we we make a mistake thinking there is first mover advantage. I think in responding to a crisis, the second or third mover is the real advantage. Um, because you can be learning from what you can be learning from what other people are doing, um, so keeping keeping up, pushing the point where you have to you arrive at that decision tree juncture as far down the line as possible, because you're getting more and more information by the hour, by the day, that enables you to make better decisions. That's, so that that I think is the one thing. And then reviewing once you've made it, can we can can we can we roll back from it? But the other the other one is. What it's all led us to do, the need to move at pace and the sheer breadth of impact of the pandemic has made, okay, we'll, we'll go and create five different teams to deal with different aspects. That's fine. And each individual team is doing the logical, the right thing. I don't think we've necessarily been good enough, and I'm guilty of this at a, fa at a faculty level, we've been guilty of it at a university level, is bringing those strands together and really testing out whether the implications of the work that's done in one strand, one silo, what does it have for, for another? What does it have for another? 
and get and and we spend a lot of time doing work in the silos, but not enough time going and testing when we join them up together. So we've had a couple of instances where we we're now effectively testing out in real time and finding the assumptions that were made by facilities, the assumptions that were made by the timetable and team, the assumptions that were made by academic departments. Hang on, when you put it into reality those elements that are not working. Now, if we'd gone and modeled that in advance, and I think we probably did have the time to, to do that, that would have helped us. Um, so delay decision to maximize your information, but don't not make a decision, never not make a decision. Making a decision is better than not. But then think about modeling the integration of the individual decisions. Yeah, and that's very true. And it it's um, when I think about management information systems in the military in my 20 years in the military, we were always trying to make a decision what the enemy was doing over the other side of the hill. And um, the sort of you sent reconnaissance units up to the hill to report back and they'd run down and tell you in, in simple terms, of course, now they can radio you, but they'd run back and tell you. But by that stage, the enemy had moved. Mm -hmm. And so you make a decision based on 90% of information, 98% of information. Just 50% of the information. Sometimes you're lucky and you get it right. And they go, oh, well, of course, that was my good decision making. But a lot of the time, you're just very fortunate um, or you got it badly wrong. And I've seen people who just opened their offices, new, brand new office, COVID office. Let's all go back to work today. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> just stay home. Stay, yeah. Oh, no. You know? And um, so that's really interesting. Last, um, last couple of questions. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? And what's a book recommendation that you'd like us to, to, to read about that you think is quite helpful for leadership in this current climate? I mean, I, most of my colleagues would think this is quite strange because I think they would all seem, perceive me as reasonably innovative and entrepreneurial. But I almost think there's an element where you are a, it's certainly in a university sector, they're talking about long-lived organizations. There's an element where you're a curator not a curator in a static negative sense because you've got to keep the organization very, very good. But, the, but in the sense that you want to leave it a better institution than it was when you arrived by whatever the benchmarks for that sector happen to be. So that would be, that would be one. Yeah. The other one is I've seen it and it's, it's been characteristic of, and it's one privilege in an academic career is you want to see students you've worked with when they graduate going on and doing really great things. Um, so the legacy is going and creating future academics, if you're looking at people doing PhDs, coming through our mainstream core programs, going on and becoming great leaders in organizations and saying, well, actually, what it was, was the, the experience I had at Lancaster. That's what made me the leader I am. Um, and linked to that, people are doing short-term short executive programs, saying it's enabled us to, us to turn our business around, it's enabled us to grow at a different pace. So it's actually what value you, value you deliver to society and the constituency that you're serving would be, would, yeah. would be the things that matter. Legacy. Yeah, so that's the like that's the legacy. That's what you want to do. You want to make you want to make a difference. You don't. I mean, education. I think is an interesting university. Tertiary education is an interesting area. You come into it because you've got an intellectual curiosity, but you also come into it because you do want to make the world a better place. And I think if your research and in particular your students are making the world a better place, that's the legacy. That's the legacy you want. Um, I want Lancaster to be recognised even more than it is already as a as a leading management school and one that does make a real difference to society um, it's not about necessarily creating more hedge fund managers it's about it's about developing people who go on and run unesco they can go and run unilever they can go and run wwf etc um, they can go and run Experian. Um, they can go and run a range of organizations, but they do something that's anchored in, that, that makes a difference to the world, but is anchored in their experience here. So that, that for me. Right. That's great. And the book? And the book. The book, is a, the book flows kind of naturally from that J.D. Vance Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, really? Hillbilly Elegies. So this is J.D. Vance was what, what the Americans describe as Scotch-Irish. Um, basically sort of 
in the sticks of um, rural Pennsylvania. Um, really, the um, sort of working class, very American blue collar, suffered hugely with the economic changes that we've seen over the past three decades, um, unemployment, opioid abuse, etc. But a real piece, it's a really powerful book, a very powerful personal narrative about somebody going on and coming from that upbringing and sparing no, um, not hiding anything about that, about that upbringing and how education, it was, ed- it was education that transformed him. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful story, I think, about um, contemporary society because we've got we've got Brexit, we've got Trump, we get Le Pen, we get a range of other populists around the world. There's been a disconnect for much of society from the wider, from, from the benefits that, that the economy provides. Uh, we face some real, I think, fairly fundamental challenges unless we can re-establish that very clear link benefit between what businesses do, how businesses operate, and how the mass of society um, prospers on the prospers on the back of it. Uh, uh, don't we don't businesses operate under license from society? Society yeah. can ultimately withdraw that license. Yeah, fascinating. Angus, thank you. Uh, it's been fascinating having you on the series. I, I personally have learned a massive amount, and I hope that everybody who's watching these videos and listening to the podcast will gain as much as I have. So thank you for your time and. If you stay on, we'll have a chat after the end of the series. So thank you. Well, thank you. Likewise, likewise, thank you. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed a number of your podcasts and felt a bit, oof, not sure I'm quite in that league. But anyway, hopefully, hopefully it's a distinctive perspective that we've, that we've, that we've, that we've provided. So, thank, so Jonathan, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Angus. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.